0: If you're new with us, we are going through the Gospel of Luke, uh, verse by verse, which uh, will take us some time, and uh, together today we're looking at Luke uh, chapter 4, verse 31 to 44. As I look at my notes, I say, it says Mark 4:31, but we're in Luke, we're in Luke, okay? Uh, so I'm going to find my place there, and uh, we want to ask for the Lord's help as we uh, look to this text. Father, we pray that today you would open up our, our, our eyes to, to behold wonderful things from your word that the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of Scripture would also now illuminate our minds to understand it, and not only understand it, but to to feel the gravity of it and to see Christ in it and be changed by it. And we pray all this together today in Jesus' good name. Amen. One of the phrases that uh, the youngsters use today is, it just hits different. Right? If you're not up on the lingo, something hits different uh, when it is better than the standard experience. It could be the flavor of chips, uh, a type of shoe, or a particular song that just, just hits different. It leaves you with a, a different emotion or feeling as you experience it. And we might say that the ministry of Jesus on this day in Capernaum, it just hit different. Right? They are amazed at Jesus' authority and his power. He is set apart from all the religious leaders of the day. He's not a philosopher or a a moral teacher. He's more than that. He has come among them, and his ministry struck them. It just hit different. Now, Luke showed us in uh, the previous text a negative reaction to the ministry of Jesus as Jesus was ministering in his hometown of Nazareth. And now, as he is in Capernaum, we see a positive reaction to the ministry of Jesus. The sermon that Jesus preached in Nazareth, that he came to bring good news to the poor and to liberate the oppressed and the captives, is now worked out in this passage. We kind of move, if you like, from the message of Jesus that he came to proclaim to the mission of Jesus as he actualizes what he just preached about. What does it look like for Jesus to set the prisoners free? What does it look like for Jesus to bring healing and wholeness and salvation what does it look like for Jesus' authority and power and grace to be put on displayed? It looks a little bit like this day in Capernaum. This is just one day in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's a somewhat frenetic day. And everywhere Jesus goes, people are transformed. And that continues to happen today. Now these events are so great, and all the events of the Gospels are so great, that you have to do something with them if you've actually looked at them. Some dismissed them. Uh, Some tried to edit them. Some, back in the day, uh, who were part of what was called the Jesus Seminar, got together a group of so-called scholars, and they voted on what they thought historically happened in these passages. And they were left with a Jesus that was not born of a virgin, who did not do miracles, who did not die a substitutionary death, and did not rise from the dead. And consequently, consequently, they ended up with a Jesus that is not worth living for, and certainly not a Jesus worth dying for. And what we wanna pray today is that God would open up our eyes to see Christ for who he is, and to receive him as he is, and to follow him. And so we could break our text down in just two simple parts. First of all, the authority of Jesus. Spend most of our time there. And then secondly, in that last little bit in verses 42 to 44, the priority of Jesus how is it that jesus's authority is uh is described in these verses first of all we see his authority in his teaching jesus has already been teaching we looked at the sermon in nazareth last week and now it says he goes down to capernaum into the city of galilee capernaum was a small town uh 600 to 100 uh, 1500 people the main place for fishing as we'll look at next week uh, it's still today one of the top three or four places uh, in Israel uh, that, that I've visited uh, in Israel because it still uh, is reminiscent of, of the day of Jesus. There's not a lot that has changed there. Uh, and, and you can still to this day go to a synagogue that is, was built on a, the first century synagogue where uh, Jesus taught here in Capernaum. And right across the way from this uh, synagogue is the, the remains of Peter's mother, mother-in-law's house. Uh, and it has sort of this big spaceship of a thing that's now built over it to protect it. And so it's a small little town, and uh, right off of the coast. And Jesus is here in uh, Capernaum in this synagogue teaching. And what strikes the people about his teaching is his authority. They were astonished, verse 32, because his teaching possessed Authority. Mark adds in the parallel account of this story that he taught with one as authority, not as the scribes. His teaching is set in contrast to the religious leaders of the day. The scribes, the Pharisees, their teaching was based on their oral tradition, and it was one big chain of kind of secondhand theology that had been passed down. And the people recognized something different about the preaching and teaching of Jesus. And that's because he spoke as God himself. He spoke as God making absolute claims on their lives. The scribes spoke from authorities. Jesus spoke with authority. Jesus' authority was not a derived authority. His authority is rooted in his identity. He is the author of life himself. And so the one who spoke the very ground on which we stand today is the one who was speaking in this little synagogue and his voice, his words carried unparalleled authority. If we would have been there, we would not have walked away saying, "That well, was a nice little talk. We would have been gripped. There was a freshness, a power to Jesus' preaching and his teaching. We know elsewhere that his teaching and preaching possess great clarity and simplicity as well. That's something all of us should pursue as we commend God's word to people, a simplicity, Paul prayed, uh, or I told the Colossians to pray for him that he would make the gospel clear Once Harry Ironside who was a great preacher was greeted by a visitor who said that they enjoyed the service But they didn't think he was a very good preacher and when he asked him why what, what I, I agree with you But what led you to that conclusion and they said to Ironside I understood everything you said That's why you're not a great preacher it was actually a compliment wasn't it that that there is a clarity to gospel proclamation that should uh, that should be evident in our in our ministry as it was in the ministry of Jesus but it was not only clear it was convicting it was authoritative conclusion he taught as one with authority and it's his word that we today continue to preach and teach believing that it still changes lives even today god's word still works Right? We see his authority in his teaching. Secondly, we see his authority over the demonic. Here we have a very striking story. This is the first of 21 miracle stories in the Gospel of Luke. And I think that's significant. It's a story of, to use modern vernacular, an exorcism. Jesus casting a demon out of a person. And I think this story is a micro picture of what Jesus came to do on a macro scale. And I think this is perhaps why Luke put it in the front. What did Jesus come to do? Well, one of the things he came to do was abolish the work of the devil. He came to destroy the works of darkness. And so as Jesus is in this little synagogue teaching, his sermon is interrupted by an individual who uh, is possessed with a demon. Luke underscores how bad it is by the repeated emphasis on it being an unclean demon, right? That, That it is unholy. So I was reading this. I was thinking of Martin Lloyd Jones, a great preacher in, in England, who one time said that he was preaching, and a lady, a local lady, drifted into the worship service, and she had been involved in the occult, and she said that she sensed a power that was different in the room, and she called it "quote a clean power," and that's what happens when Jesus shows up, right? His power is holy, it's pure, it's clean. He restores us. He purifies us. He changes us. And there is this collision of the clean Jesus and the unclean man who's possessed by this unclean demon. And this demon, like uh, elsewhere, is creating havoc, yelling out, You have come to destroy us. It's an instinctive cry of dread. And the demon asks about the relationship between the demons and Jesus, implying that there is no common ground. Between the one who is holy and pure and clean, and the demon which is unclean and unholy. In fact, it's interesting that what is said from this unclean demon is that Jesus is the holy one of God. The holy one is meeting with an unholy one. Interestingly, the demon confesses that which is true about Jesus, as does the the individuals later in the story. Often we see that in the Gospels, that the demons actually have good theology, right? They confess a right thing about God, or about Christ here, and and I think that also is instructive for us. It's one thing to have a confession of truth. It's another thing to have a confession of faith, that you can know true things about Jesus, but not possess the reality to which those things point. We need a a, a profession of faith, even more than a possession of faith, in the the Christ that is presented to us in the scriptures. So this guy is tormented. I suppose we should say a little bit more about demon possession. What shall we say? Well, this is when a person is dominated by the spirit of of a demon, tormented, and left powerless. And I think we should distinguish it from cases of insanity, mental illness, sickness, this is a special phenomenon, especially present during the ministry of Jesus. And I think the reason we see demon possession so much in the Gospels, and by the way, we barely see anything after that. We see some in Acts. Those who say demons are everywhere in the Bible I haven't read the Bible. They're not everywhere in the Bible. They're in the ministry of Jesus, especially, I think, because they realize the kingdom of darkness is under a threat. And they want to let all hell break loose on the ministry of Jesus. And so here it is. Jesus is come to destroy the works of the devil, so it should be no shocker that the first miracle we see in the Gospel of Luke is Jesus casting out this demon from this man. Now that's hard for moderns to accept. Like we, we, we want to classify everything in some other condition, in some other category. I'll say more about that in a moment. At this point, we see in verse 36 that Jesus' authority over the demon is clear. He simply rebukes the demon and he is healed. It says the demon had thrown him down in their midst and he came out of him having done this man no harm. You notice Jesus doesn't have any kind of uh, incantation, there's no bizarre practices. Like those who were self-proclaimed exorcists in Jesus' day, engaged often in bizarre practices. As one writer says, for example, a ring would be placed under the subject's nose. The exorcist would recite a lengthy spell, and there would be a stage splash in a nearby basin of water by the unlucky demon. But Jesus engaged in no such hocus-pocus. There's no mumbo-jumbo, no summoning of powers, just Jesus' word, and the man is healed. As Luther said, in the mighty fortresses, our God, one little word shall fail him. Just one. The demon doesn't care for this man. throws down the man. But notice he can do no harm to him. I think this story illustrates vividly for us the confrontation that happens in spiritual warfare. That there is a violence between light and darkness. So whenever we minister the gospel, we should not be surprised by opposition by warfare. Whenever we represent the values of the kingdom of God in a world that is, often holds values antithetical to the word of God, we should not be surprised by this kind of spiritual conflict that lies behind what we often see with our visible eye. There is a war going on. And consequently, as a result of Jesus's healing of this man, the people are amazed. They've never seen power like this And so in verse 37, they begin to uh, uh, spread the word more and more about Jesus and his fame is spreading. So we can take several things away from this. I think this event shows us the reality of spiritual warfare that we always need to be reminded of. People today may ask us, do you really believe in demons? Isn't that very primitive? Didn't the biblical writers attribute everything to the demonic didn't they attribute every emotional, psychological issue to the realm of the demonic? And the answer to that is no, they did not. In fact, the biblical writers in many ways are more complex than modern man. The Bible writers do not refer to everything as demonic, but they do have a category for it. They do realize it and call attention to it. For example, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus is doing work of, of healing, and it says the people who came to Jesus were, one, sick, two, afflicted with diseases, three, those oppressed by demons, four, those having seizures, and five, paralytics. You notice they don't dump it all into one bucket. They recognize that humanity, we're complicated individuals, right? It it reminds me of the old uh, sermon Richard Baxter preached with this great title, quote, The Cure of Melancholy and Overmuch Sorrow by Faith. It was a 51-page sermon on depression. And and Baxter gave a number of causes for depression and cures based on those causes, like psychological causes, moral causes, mental causes, and the demonic. And so that's very important because often we want to reduce humanity to one particular thing, don't we? And so we just say, hey, just take a pill. Just get more exercise. Just eat more kale. Right? Get in a group. Or we might even say, everything is of the devil. But what we should see, what I want you to see, is that we are complicated individuals, and there is something in the realm of the demonic. There is a spiritual war going on. And while the, the uh, demonic activity was, was intensified during the ministry of Jesus, the devil is still at work today. I don't think our situation as Christians will be one like this guy who was dominated and left powerless. We have been raised together with Christ. However, the devil is still at work in a variety of ways in this world for example consider a handful of texts here about how we could anticipate the devil being at work one would be in the world work of evangelism Paul says in 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 that the god of this age is blinding eyes there's more going on than them trying to figure things out rationally or Paul says likewise in 2nd Timothy chapter 2 he tells Timothy to deal with his opponents gently that they may be led to repentance and overcome the snare of the devil and so the picture is of an unbeliever being in the snare of the devil, and that's why evangelism is spiritual warfare. Or Paul says for Christians that ethically anger and bitterness can be tied to the devil's work. Ephesians four twenty-six and 7, be angry and do not sin and give no opportunity to the devil. Likewise, Paul ties pride to the work of the devil, In 1 Timothy 3, when speaking to pastors, he says that they cannot be puffed up with conceit lest they fall into condemnation of the devil. James says that our selfish ambition is from below and it is demonic. And that false teaching, 1 Timothy 4, is demonic. Think about those things. The devil is at work in relationships. He's at work trying to make you prideful. He's at work in trying to make you a selfishly uh, ambitious person. And he's at work in the world of false teaching. My point is, warfare is a reality. And therefore, we must fight in the strength of the king and trust in his mighty power. We must take up spiritual weapons of prayer and the sword of the spirit to engage in this conflict. And this event shows us the mission of Jesus. Jesus Christ came to reverse the curse. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And it's an amazing picture. This micro picture of what Jesus came to do at a macro scale that we know at the cross, Jesus disarmed the powers. And at the second coming, he will do away with the devil and his hosts once and for all. You see, this event is a great glorious preview of what's to come. It's signaling something beyond itself. Luke wants us to see Jesus's power and victory over the devil and his minions. And just as Jesus easily vanquished this demon, we can be assured that he will one day deal with him once and for all. Because Jesus is the cosmic Christ. He is the warrior Christ who came to liberate us from all oppression, including demonic activity. These events you might like in here in the Gospels as Jesus keeps having these encounters with those who are influenced by the devil. They're like little skirmishes in a battle that point ahead to the final victory that he will have. He will win the battle and so that should give us assurance. As Christians, we read this story, it should give us assurance that Jesus reigns, that Jesus will deal with our enemies. His authority over the demonic. Thirdly, his authority over sickness. Here we see a very endearing uh, picture, and it's quite a contrast. We've got this dramatic picture of Jesus dealing with this demon-possessed man, and now he turns his attention to Peter's mother-in-law. God bless mother-in-laws. right? Jesus is not just the cosmic Christ. He's the domestic Christ. He is the personal Christ. He is the Christ who heals moms. You know who else needs Jesus, not just demon-possessed people? Moms. (laughs) I know dads do too, and siblings, and everybody in between. But here we have a picture of, a wonderful picture of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law, it's such an endearing scene for many reasons. I don't know about you, and I'm, I know this is not everybody's experience, but I always thought my mom could do everything. And I knew she knew everything, All right? I was reminded of this just a couple of days ago. I went home to surprise my mom for her 70th birthday. I flew in just for a day. My dad went to pick me up from the airport. And right as he left, she said, well, go pick up Tony. And nobody told her, like, how does she know that? She, she, she's omniscient. Uh, so, She was still struck by the the, the gesture, but um, (laughs) here we have Jesus not only dealing with a guy who's tormented, powerless, but now a lady who's got a fever. The text literally reads that she has this severe fever. It's a a very serious situation, and so they go and, and tell Jesus about Peter's mother-in-law, and I love how after rebuking this fever, she is healed, and immediately she begins to serve. And so there's not like a recovery period. There's no I'm on the mend. Jesus brings the mend, right? She's right back to her normal self, serving. And again, I think we have to read these miracles again with this already but not yet view in mind. You see, this is what's going to happen for all of us. Many people that read the miracles of Jesus and they say, I can't believe in these miracles because I don't believe in the violation of the laws of nature. And what we say in response is this is not the violation of the laws of nature. This is the restoration of nature. This is what Jesus will do. And when he heals us once and for all, we're going to be up and about perfectly whole. Jesus came to do this for you. There's going to be a world in which there, there is no more sickness. And right now we can pray for healing, and we should. We respect and support those who work in the medical field. Sometimes Jesus can heal us through miracle, but often through medical care. But we know sometimes we're not healed. And Jesus will, will for his own sovereign purposes, allow us to endure affliction and suffering. But one day, all Christians will be healed. (laughs) One day. Some tears will only be wiped away on the last day but eventually they'll all be healed. And this healing is pointing to that healing. And only one other thing to say about this healing. We need to see from this story, just as I mentioned of this already but not yet nature of Jesus' miracles, the healing shows us that there's something even more important than physical healing. You need salvation, right? It'd be a tragedy just to see Jesus as a physician, the great physician, but not see him as Jesus, the great redeemer. A lot of people, when get in trouble, they'll cry out to anybody for help. Crying out to Jesus, right? What we need is Jesus as our Savior who will deliver us once and for all from all physical infirmities and will bring total salvation to us. I mean, think about what great lengths people will do in order to be healed. What What, what they'll endure or what people will do to protect themselves from a sickness. Have we not seen that in manifold ways over the last few years? But tragically, people will not go to great lengths to come to Jesus for salvation. Alexander McLaren, the old preacher, said, Offer men smaller gifts, and they will run over one another and scramble for them. But offer them the highest, and they will scarcely hold out a languid hand to take them. The physical healing is the small gift. The ultimate gift is eternal life. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? We might add to that, what does it profit a man to have a healthy body and lose his soul? If those in the gym cared as much about forgiveness of sin and eternal life as they do their triceps, it would be a revival in the gym. (laughs) Right? Many people with good health will perish in an eternity without Christ healing is wonderful physical health is a blessing it's wonderful not to have a fever (laughs) terrible to have a fever isn't it we pray for those for healing but what we you need more than anything is salvation in Jesus Christ a salvation that points to the day in which all sickness will be eradicated well Luke then summarizes in verses 40 and 41 sickness and demons he says more are coming with sickness they're brought to Jesus he compassionately heals them In verse 41, those who are uh, influenced by these demons uh, are also healed as they express another truth about Jesus, calling him the Son of God. Interestingly, it says in verse uh, 41, he would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. I think that just points to the reality that Jesus doesn't want to trust the work of evangelism to demons. Right? He doesn't want to use servants of hell to talk about heaven. So Jesus here in a day, what a day this guy had. In a day, shows his authority in his teaching over the spiritual realm and over physical bodies. It's it's a crazy chaotic world in which Jesus came. And he sets it all right. It's a little snapshot, a micro shot of what he will do one day. It's kind of like, I don't know if you had a school teacher when you went to school that when they went out of the room, the whole class went bananas. And as soon as they would return and say a word, everybody got orderly. And Mr. Baker, I remember in sixth grade, he would leave, and we're throwing stuff at each other, and he would just walk in the room and say, quiet. And it was all, poof. This is Christ. A day in Capernaum. Just say the word. Well, what's his priority? Verses 42 and 4, I'm out of time, but you see it there. It says, when his fame is is continuing, he doesn't uh, welcome it, but rather departs to a desolate place. Chapter 5, verse 16, we see that desolate places where Jesus would go to pray. Mark adds that little bit of information for us also. That Jesus, after a crazy day of ministry, gets away to be alone with the Father. That's a very instructive word for us. If Jesus needed to get alone with the Father, how much more do we? And we can't be good with people if we're always with people. We need to be alone. We need that space, that, that, that time to be with the Father. And then as they're coming to him, Jesus doesn't continue healing. But actually he says, this is my priority. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for that purpose. And off he goes. As we said last week, Jesus never went on a healing tour. He never went on a, 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 a casting out demon tour. He did those things along the way. His purpose, his priority, was preaching the kingdom of God. Preaching the fact that because he had arrived, the kingdom had arrived. That his rule that they're seeing in a micro level will be once and for all seen at a macro level. And so he says, I must go out and preach to these other towns. He's not going to be limited to one particular place because Jesus is not a tribal uh, Messiah. He is the Messiah for the world. And he's come here in a person, invading dark places, the spaces of the enemy, demonstrating his authority over them. He came to preach about this, and he came that we may receive this. And so, my friends, as I wrap up, never forget that there is a war on. There's a war on. We have an enemy who hates us. He rages, John tells us in Revelation, because his days are short. And so we must pray. We must take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We need more than buildings. We need more than organization. We need more than management tips. We need power because we're in a spiritual war. Secondly, never lose hope because Jesus Christ is our great liberator. Never lose hope when you feel the darkness. Never lose hope when you feel the influence of the evil one because light has come. Jesus came to liberate men and women from the powers of darkness and to give them a taste of the world to come. He came to set prisoners free. And Jesus Christ specializes in hopeless situations. He can intervene and transform situations and individuals. And one day he will come to end it all and bring about total peace. And finally, we must never stop preaching the good news. This is Jesus' priority. This is our priority. The world needs to know of our Christ. And as we preach the good news, we must believe that the gospel still works. It's still changing lives as we've seen even today. What was it like this day in the ministry of Jesus? The people could have said, Jesus' ministry just hits different. His authority over sickness, over demons, over death. His authority to forgive sins, to grant eternal life. I would appeal to you, friend, if you haven't trusted in this Christ, what is keeping you from him today? He will have you. Turn to him, look to him, believe in him. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, be encouraged. Be encouraged. What a Savior we have. All authority and all power. Let's pray together and give God thanks. Father, we thank you for your word today, for this mighty picture of Jesus Christ, our great Savior. And we pray for one another. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us strength in the battles that we have day to day. That we would never lose hope knowing that one day the battle will end and when we will see our Christ and there'll be no more fevers, no more sickness, no more death, no more crying, no more war. And until that day, I pray you would grant us much grace to be faithful to Jesus Christ who is worthy of our lives. And we pray even now you would increase our gratitude for who he is and what he's done as we prepare our hearts to take the table. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.